This is the Happen to Your Career Podcast, episode 171. The truth is those people really determine the quality of your work. You have a boss that's a micromanager, you have colleagues that don't, you know, hold up their end of the bargain. It's going to affect your work. It's going to drive you nuts. Even if you're working in a dream job, you're not going to last there a long time if other people don't see the world in a very similar way. So values are very important. Hey, HTYCers. If you've been struggling to figure out work that fits you, then join our eight-day free mini course. All you have to do is text HTYC to 38470. That's HTYC to 38470 or simply visit figureitout.co. That's figureitout.co. See you there. This has happened to your career. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and then make it happen. Whether you're looking to do your own thing or find your dream job, you've come to the right place. I'm Scott Barlow. This is Scott Anthony Barlow, and you are listening to Happen to Your Career. This is the show that helps you figure out what work fits you by exploring other stories. We get to bring on all kinds of experts like Gia Ganesh, who helps people eliminate career burnout and make career choices to fulfill their life goals. And people that are having pretty amazing stories like Regan Hillier, who found herself burnt out on her career and decided to make that huge life change and now gets to help people shift their reality. So these are people that are just like you. They've gone from where they are to what they really want to be doing. And they're just like our next guest, Yuri Kruman. Yuri has a particularly interesting story because his family immigrated from the Soviet Union through his mother's career in science. And, and like a whole bunch of people, he went down the path that a lot of parents groom their children to follow, that path to a successful career through higher education. And while Yuri was in school, he realized that he was just not great at learning pre-med and he didn't belong in the sciences. And he knew that his passion was in humanity. So he ended up switching to law school to at least walk away from a graduate degree that was pleasing his parents much more so than himself. But it was only after his first job as a paralegal that he had another realization that I think probably all of us can relate to. He couldn't pretend to be good at something anymore, that he he, he needed to work for something that he was actually excited about. So that led us up to where we're going to start with him, which is today. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you just a quick couple of pieces to look for in our conversation that I think you're really going to like. Uh, one thing in particular, since he's made a lot of career changes, I want you to pay attention to the first signs of when you know you're ready to make a change in your career. And I think that that is incredibly helpful and how some of your past experiences and work in life can help you identify patterns for you to determine what it is that you are naturally good at. And then Yuri shares a little bit about, uh, the process and the steps to take and how to pull out some of those patterns from, from your past. And I push him a little bit on this area so that you can get the very, very most of it. And he, he does not disappoint provides a great answer. Okay. So take a listen to my conversation with Yuri Krum. Here we go. Hey, welcome back to a happen to your career. I have with me, I always get really excited about this, but in particular today, very, very interested 
in our guest's story. And I have a ridiculous number of questions. I always do. But in this case, some off-the-wall questions as well. And before we get too far into it, I want to say welcome to Happen to Your Career. How are you doing? Thank you very much for having me, Scott. Really appreciate it. Really excited to be on. Good, because I'm excited to have you here, as it turns out. So let's do this. But before we even get very far in, and I alluded to, you've got this very interesting past that weaves and bobs and ducks and I don't know, I'm out of adjectives or verbs or anything else that might describe it. But you've got this very, very interesting past. We're going to dig into that. How do you describe what it is that you do nowadays? I do really two things. One is I help mid-career millennials that are coming out of, let's say, uh, banks or large healthcare organizations or pretty much large companies of any sort to either build their own startups from scratch, so they're first-time founders, or I help them to transition to a startup where they can do their life's best work. Perfect. It's almost like you're in the right place. Now people are getting an idea for why you're here, why you're here to talk about this and have this conversation. You and I started talking before we pressed the record button a little bit earlier about the concept and also the how to identify what could be the great career move for you and how to actually go about that in the figuring out process for lack of a better phrase. And we're going to dig into all that too. But I would love to go way back first because this has been a long arduous, crazy up and down roller coaster of a journey for you as near as I can tell based on what I know. So where on earth does this, this journey start for you, Yuri? Well, it starts in a small town in the Soviet Union, now of course Russia, called Pushina, which is about 80 miles south of Moscow, to academic parents. My father was a physicist, my mom was a neuroscientist, and we made it out. That was our big thing. So the day that Bill Clinton was elected, we flew into Lexington, Kentucky, of all places. So when you say you made it out, give a little bit of explanation for people. The usual scenario for Soviet immigrant is actually to come as a refugee through Italy, through Austria, and fly to go to Israel, and maybe in the end, oh, I have a chance to go to the U.S. So that's the usual scenario. For my family, it was a little bit different because my mom is a scientist, and you know there was this massive brain drain, and essentially all these academic centers in the U.S. were like, sweet, we need cheap, amazing labor. So that's how we got here. That's my mom. She's been a professor of neuroscience. That was the ticket. That was the ticket, exactly. So what happened then? I mean, clearly, I want to come back to that because I'm sure that that's been very formative for you in the first place, just that experience. But what took place from there? Well, we arrived and, uh, you know, first you have this initial shock of, uh, oh my God, everyone's driving a car and we're like the, the fools walking in the winter to the grocery store. And we get to the grocery store and we're like, oh my God, all these fruits and what's in the winter? Can you imagine? It's like paradise. Where you taste the fruits, you're like, okay, they have no taste. <laughs> so, you know, there's this kind of initial surprise about everything. In the Soviet Union, we had this thing about the streets are paved with gold in the U.S. and all that kind of stuff. Well, hold on. They're not? <laughs> are you? I'm still, I'm still disappointed. looking for the gold, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you get here. There's no gold leafing all over the streets or anything like that. It's asphalt instead. and Asphalt, and we're walking on it, and we're freezing. But, you know, at least we're Russian, so we have good clothing for the winter. Like, yes. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, I grew up there. I kind of had the whole Midwestern experience of growing up with wholesome values and people will stab you in the back, not in the front like in New York. It was fun. It was a very interesting experience. I'm really glad I grew up in Kentucky and not really in uh, New York because I see how kids grow up here and you know they're all like running around like, yeah, I know everything. I've seen everything. And 
it's tough. You don't want to have that as a kid. You want to have nature and you want to be able to play and not think about college when you're eight years old. I'm really happy that I had that part of my life, but it also means that when I arrived in college, you know, I was a very good student and all that, but this was a completely different level. You have all these kids from prep schools on the East and West Coast, and they're like, they're working crazy hours. And, you know, I came to Penn to do pre-med. And of course, it turns out that I wasn't a very good pre-med student. I love the subject matter and always had the health component there, but I really love humanities. That was always my thing. And it took me a long time to figure out that I'm actually much better at the humanities part. But immigrant fashion, I would say that I kept going because, hey, you need a grad degree and hey, you know, mom is a neuroscientist. So, okay, you're not going to do an MD, do a PhD at least. Save yourself. That's how I arrived in New York. So you had all kinds of different pressures there. (laughs) The pressures are massive from the very beginning. You know, why did we come to the U.S. so that you can have a good job? We don't need to think about anti-Semitism here. You know, you have all this opportunity to become something great and to make a lot of money and, of course, get that grad degree because two parents with PhDs that are academics means you have to get a PhD. You're obligated at that point. (laughs) Yeah, you know. Probably more than one. (laughs) (laughs) So the trouble is after the first year, actually, during the first year in grad school, I come to New York and, you know, bright eyes. And I actually was not thrilled to be in the program. I love the subject matter, but being in the lab all that time, 24-7, not for me. So what do I do? I create my first startup while I'm in grad school. So instead of going to lab, I'm creating something called, get this, JuicyJews.com. That was my first startup. Perfect. As that should be called. (laughs) I still have the t-shirts, you know, I'm happy to send you one at one point. (laughs) I have to get a picture of that logo. (laughs) There's got to be a logo that goes with it. I can imagine. It is. My mom was like, oh my God, this is like going to create an anti-Semitic conspiracy against (laughs) Like, mom, really? Really? Come on. Like, we're past that. Okay, perfect. So then... You do the startup, you've got the t-shirts, fantastic logo, and what ends up happening from there? So, you know, guys in India build this from my savings from making, what, 24K a year. I'm riding high in New York City, you know. And yeah, so the guys in India build this website, and I don't know what the hell I'm doing, of course. And I built a network of 14,000 people on Facebook. I kind of created a sort of algorithm to figure out who's Jewish or not. It was about 98% accurate. You know, I launched the website, there's a massive spike in traffic, and then it just dies. I just learned that, you know what, my registration process was too long, fatal flaw. But I got the bug, you know, I knew that I would want to do my own company at some point down the road. Anyway, so I spent a year in grad school, and they politely asked me to leave because it's just clearly not a good fit. It's just not what I should be doing. It's not my focus. So I say, okay, thank you very much. What do I do? I need a grad degree. So I applied to law school, and I worked for a year as a paralegal. And in that time, I realized, you know, okay, this maybe isn't so bad. And okay, you know, like the other fool, I want to practice constitutional law. Yeah, law school, this is going to be awesome. And started about a year later, going through law school and working all these different internships. I'm working with a lady on Fifth Avenue. I don't know what the hell is legal consulting to this day. She's not a JD. She was an advisor to Pataki. She was an advisor to a couple other big politicians here. She's making 500 bucks an hour or more advising them on something that's all legal consulting. That was my first experience. And, you know, I do one or two of these. Then what do I do? I start writing a novel. My first novel, I started writing about midway through law school. That is what you do. 
That's one of the things that I have done. It took me about seven years to write that novel. The reason that it got finished, thankfully, was because I met my then-girlfriend, now-wife, and she said, either you finish this or I'm out of here. Interesting. So tell me about that. I knew that you had written a couple books, a couple novels, but I didn't realize that that one took seven years to finish. So what was going on? (laughs) What was the holdup? Oh, my God. Well, between about a quarter million in law school debt, yes, number two, graduating in the single worst job market perhaps of all time, certainly in the last few generations. Then there is the realization that, you know what, I really should not be doing law. This is not what I love. I really cannot do doc review for the next five, six years. Plus, frankly, I wasn't a very good student. That's just another factor. It's hard for me to pretend, right? So it took me a very long time to figure that I really need to be doing something I'm very passionate about. And that's one of the reasons why I ended up doing coaching because I've been coaching people my whole life. Here's what you do to me to get healthier. Here's a tool that you need. Here's a strategy you need to read about. I've always been doing that, but it's always kind of like, ah, come on, that's not going to pay or, you know, that'll be down the line when I'm established. I'll be teaching someone in a university, et cetera, et cetera. Someday syndrome. Someday PhD or PhD-like scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about a couple of these things really quick, not to dovetail us too far, but I'm really curious about some of these pieces leading up to it. First of all, I heard you say that they politely asked me to leave in the first grad school. So first of all, what did that look like? I mean, I'm guessing that didn't feel great, but how did that go down? What was that experience like, first of all? That was pretty traumatic. I would say it's not even because they asked me to leave. It was clearly not a good fit, but it was because my mom already, she was like my declining grades from high school. I was 4.0 student in college, like circles around me with a prep school work ethic, frankly. And my grades are sliding down and down and I get to grad school and I'm like, this is my salvation. And I messed that up. It's, It's just massive, massive letdown for my mom who was hoping to have me as a colleague and I'm doing research for six summers, you know, two with her. It was really, really terrible feeling that like I let my mom down of all people. This is the closest person. Now, this is really interesting though, because I think that happens to a lot of people, not necessarily that everybody's mom is expecting to have them as a colleague, (laughs) but I think to some degree, many parents have hopes and expectations that then whether they mean to or not get passed on or moved to our hopes and expectations. So we have a tendency to kind of pull those into ourselves and create our own web of what we should do, if you would. So how did you sort of work through that? Because clearly it was, you were in that web of expectations, first of all, but then all of that disappointment that went along with it that we kind of force on ourselves because of stuff like that. Did I work through it? Mostly, I don't know that I really worked through it. For a very long time, I bottled it up. That's the number one thing because I've thought a lot about this. I've had also a lot of Soviet people that are my clients or, you know, if they're not Soviet, they were born to Soviet parents. Yeah. This big thing about you want to go through very hard experiences, almost like to gain credibility in the eyes of your parents and grandparents because, I mean, you know, they went through... Hitler, Stalin, they went through discrimination at every level of university and national pursuits, plus the Soviet Union. I mean, needless to say, that was hell. So it's almost like you have to weather your own 
sage, you know, asterisk T in order to gain credibility as if like, oh yeah, I'm part of that. Like I have street cred. <laughs> Other than just the problem of Facebook work well today or... Exactly. It's a martyr's complex. It's a very, very strong thing that I think a lot of people go through. They're like, you know, when their parents are, they might be very accomplished or they might have just gone through absolute hell. And if you're like, oh, look at me, I'm like, you know, far above that. Who am I? Like, I ha- what is my value in this world? I haven't really seen all this misery and all this terrible stuff. And it really weighs on you for a very, very long time until something either in the form of trauma or, I don't know, inspiration or something else forces you to cast that off because there's nothing in your life in this world which has to make you suffer or to make you continue suffering throughout your life just because you gain credibility. That's total nonsense. Self-induced to some degree, maybe not at first, but eventually. So how did you cast that off then? What took place? Was there a single event or maybe even once the first time where you remember being able to cast that off, if you will? You know, it's a series of events. Okay, so put yourself in this scenario, right? Yeah. You've just finished law school. You know that you don't want to practice law and it's just clearly not for you, right? You need to pay bills. You got a quarter million in debt and actually had to move back home back in with mom for about two months. I couldn't handle any more than two months, right? Because when you, go back home, <laughs> you become the little boy again. And, you know, it's not even about the chores. It's about you have your own worldview and like you just you can't go back there. That's a dark place. So I moved back to New York. I lived between two friends, one of whom was actually getting married this weekend in Israel. So I'm going to be his best man. That's actually kind of cathartic also. Anyway, so I moved back. I get a job at a hedge fund. It's not even a job. It's a project, right? So I work in a project. And my girlfriend of four and a half years just left me. And it just happened that I met my wife, who's right here, actually. Hi. Hello. (laughs) Yeah, so we met at that time. and We went on a date. I was like, oh, cool. You know, a girl from Morocco. That's really interesting. Turns out she's an engineer and French and all this other stuff. So, you know, things happened very quickly. After two months, we were engaged. And we're both not have a place to live. Each of us is living with friends. And we're having a drink and I get an email. Here is an apartment. One of our friends is moving out. She's getting married. She's like, I want to keep this among friends. So we talk to each other. I'm like, look, this is absolutely nuts. Like I would never do this, but we both need a place to live. And how about it? You want to move in together? And she's like, let me ask my mom, my grandma. I don't know. Somehow miraculously, they both said yes. And we moved in. In this great apartment next to Columbia University, it was like a sublet, one of those like under the table situations. And two weeks later, I went to get a ring because I'm like, you know what? This is serious. Let's do this. And she miraculously said yes. She's still shaking her head like, my God. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is the real secret to how we get the true story. We just set the other people right alongside. (laughs) It's fact checking on the spot. (laughs) That's what it is. You know, my story, I tell it very gladly to my clients because that's the real stuff. That's how you know it's yeah. not scripted. It's just, it's so crazy that it could only happen in real life. Yeah. Then, and bottom line is I'm with this massive albatross of debt on my back. I don't know how to manage my finances. I'm like, you know, working projects here and there, really, really bad stuff, right? Pressure from having a wife or someone you're going to marry in a few months and the situation, she learns what's going on. Really, really terrible almost broke us apart actually and we stuck it out 
And I had to start figuring out, you know, how do I manage debt? How do I figure out how to manage revenue and this and that? And then eventually I got to a point where I just got so sick of my own nonsense. Like I don't have my finances together. I'm not going in the right direction. This is just really not a good situation at all. And at that point, I'm like, you know what? I have to do something. I really have to change my life completely. Otherwise, where the hell is this going? And it's really that feeling of being sick of myself and my own nonsense that spurred me to read guys like Tim Ferriss, James Altucher, Remit Sethi, and just to really research how people overcome all of these issues. I know I'm not the first. You know, that was the first thing. Like, I had to realize that others have been through all these things. And that's the hardest thing when you have a martyr's company. I feel like, I need that street cred. I need to suffer. When you get out of that, you suddenly see life. You understand, okay, people have solved these problems. How have they done it? Let me follow their path because they've been successful. That was the key. That's what got me out. It's not overnight. It's not even over a year or two years or three years. It's a process, right? It took me a very long time to say, you know what? I'm tired of going between projects, having gaps in between where I'm unemployed and I'm freaking out and how am I going to support my family? Here's one kid, here's another kid, right? And I'm working for one startup, then another startup. You're working for peanuts and you're working for the hope that equity that's not even vested yet is going to be something one day. That's not a great scenario. So also this dovetails into this past year, which is, I'm going to certainly write a book about this. It's just like all of that times three. So last April, our second daughter was born. And of course, amazing occasion. And two yeah. months in, we learn that she has retinoblastoma, which is cancer of the retina. Wow. And yeah, you can imagine. So all of this, you know, with the startup not working and somebody else's startup job didn't work out. So there's that plus the kid is sick. Like we're not just talking about a little bit stage 3D, meaning the next one is metastasis. So that would have been much, much worse. Thank God it wasn't. We basically scatter and figure out how do we treat this. Lucky to be in New York is the best specialist is here. You know, we pray, we do everything we can and, and like we get things together. I have to be at home to take care of her, right? I decide to start my own business. This time I got onto the news and I see that I'm consistently getting very, very good results from my clients. I'm really good at this stuff. Plus, I really love it. It's finally business coming together with law, with finance, with my love of teaching. Plus, it's my story. This is really who I am. I was meant to go through all of this craziness to help other people. So there's a point where all of these things come together and everything suddenly makes sense, or at least most things, many more things than before. And that's how my company really came about. That's how I am where I am today because of that final realization after, you know, 11 years of struggle and craziness and where am I going? Who am I? What am I meant to do? Finally coalesces into something that I'm connected to. Really, it's my four pillars. We talked about this before. I was sure that I needed to make changes in my career, but there were so many options that I was stuck. Cindy is a chief financial officer for a small nonprofit in Fresno, California. While completing the exercises, she made a discovery. What I knew about myself in advance was, I need to look for improvements. I need to make those improvements. And I also know I don't do maintenance. What I didn't know, there was an underlying theme between the two. The reason I need to make the improvements is because I work hard not to get bored. It was an epiphany. However, 
It seemed that she was the last one to find out. I took my shiny new discovery to my family, and they were happy to validate, yeah, that's the reason that they thought I did these things. Without the exercises and the figure it out eight day course, I would remain blind to a clarifying truth that everyone else thought that I already knew, and therefore they weren't talking about it. I'm now concentrating on work in a consulting industry that will be project-based so I can complete things and move on to the next thing, alleviating the boredom. The HTYC 8-Day Figure It Out course helped Cindy realize something that was obvious to everyone but her. What could it do to help you discover so that you can make an impactful change for your life and career? To take the course for yourself, text HTYC to 38 Four seven zero. That's HTYC to three eight four seven zero, or just simply go to figureitout.co. That's figureitout.co. One of the things I would love to do is have you describe those to our listeners, HTYCers out there. I think uh-huh. benefit greatly from just talking through those. And I love talking about this stuff, like nine, 10 hours straight on this exact topic. But first of all, if I'm in the situation that most HTYCers are, where they are looking at making that career, trying to identify what it is that they should be doing because they've had some similar experiences to what you have in in the past where it's like, hey, this isn't jiving. I'm running this direction, but it's because of my parents' expectation or somebody else's expectation. And I now know that this isn't the right path, but what then? Okay, so there are four keys to this puzzle. And it's not just you do them and magically everything opens up, but it... Whoa, 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 hold on. There's no magic beans here. <laughs> That's just... it, lifts, it lifts a burden. And the burden is that you're used to something, you're used to thinking a certain way, but now you turn it around. It's your show, right? So it's no longer someone else's show. It's not their rules, not their terms. It's you. You're driving the process. Okay, so four pillars. We're talking about, number one, life mission. Life mission is when you wake up in the morning, you check your Facebook, you get all the nonsense out of the way, and you start thinking about stuff that you really want to work on. This is in an ideal world where you don't have to think about money, circumstances, your track record, what others tell you, comparing yourself purely on your own terms. If you could do anything in this world, solve any problems, what do you try to solve? Is it curing cancer? Is it creating a new iPhone? Is it building something that doesn't exist? Is it improving something that could be made better? What is it? Number two, values. Values talks about looking at your circle of friends and family. What is it that you like about them that you would want to have in your coworkers and your colleagues, right? A lot of us roll our eyes and cynically say, ah, you know, it's my workplace, whatever. I just deal with these people on a daily basis and I just go home and, you know, I have my I have my comfort zone there. But the truth is those people really determine the quality of your work. You have a boss that's a micromanager. You have colleagues that don't you know, hold up their end of the bargain. It's going to affect your work. It's going to drive you nuts. Even if you're working in a dream job, you're not going to last there a long time if other people don't see the world in a very similar way. So values are very important. Number three is outcomes. Now, outcomes is all about what do you like to do for other people? Right? We're talking about not deliverables. We're not talking about any particular role or title or industry. Right? This is very much 
you find yourself in a situation where you can help someone else, how can you help that other person? Is it choosing to improve their health in some way? Is it to choosing to help them organize their finances and reduce stress? Is it helping them to improve the business process, to make something cheaper, better, and faster? You know, what is it you always find yourself doing for other people? That's how it comes. And the last one is role. So role is not about title. It's not about what job you have, responsibilities. Where do you fit on the spectrum of people in an organization, any organization, right? You might be the visionary leader who's always evangelizing about, you know, this is the most important problem in the world. We need to increase access to HIV drugs in sub-Saharan Africa, or we need to increase access to information through a better iPhone, whatever that is, right? You're the CEO. Or you might be the person who says, you know what? I don't care about all your mumbo jumbo. Just let's get SH asterisk T done. I don't care how you do it. Get it done on time, under budget, right? That's a CEO. You might be the in-house expert on EME economics. That's kind of like academic safe haven, right? You're the person to whom everybody else comes for expertise and analysis on a certain narrow subject. Or you might be the caretaker of the team. You help everyone else do their life's best work by providing material, emotional support, any other kind of support that they need. And uh, there are other roles, but those are kind of the main ones that I've encountered among my clients. Let me ask you about that then. I think as I get email after email after email from people and we talk with our students and our clients and listeners of this show too, we get constant questions about roles. So I really want to clarify what this is and what you mean when you say roles, because I think people jump to what you said earlier and you said it's not, it's not job title necessarily. And it's not some other things that can go along with that. But what do you mean, first of all, when you really say role? And I think even more importantly, how should they categorize themselves or should they categorize themselves when they're, when they're talking about role? Because that's what everybody wants to do. Okay, so why is it important to understand that role is not about your title? It's about the job you have. It's not even about your career per se. This is about in your life, in situations that you encounter, there tends to be a pattern of how you behave, how you help other people, what kinds of responsibilities you find yourself taking in order to help others, right? So this might be a volunteer activity, right? Someone comes and says, hey, I know you're really the best person to solve this problem, plus we know you're the most motivated to do it. What is that? This is just a friend that you choose to spend your time with. And they know that, you know, Maybe you're the person who's really good at researching and analyzing the local foodie scene. So you're always going to have that hot new restaurant that nobody else knows about to recommend to your friends. So they always come to you because you're, you're the curator, quote unquote, right? You're the one who researches, analyzes, and gives that deliverable of this is the place to go to based on your criteria, right? So how do I monetize that? I don't know. I can't be a restaurant analyst, right? Wrong, right? Think about it in those terms. You don't have to work in the restaurant industry. You don't have to be an analyst for a newspaper or a bank, right? But you know that your comfort zone is in filtering and curating a lot of information for others to use. So think about the context in which you can 
do that on a daily basis, or at least on a regular basis, to help others. Right? Because that's your natural role in any situation, which means organization, which means workplace. This is really interesting, and I'd love to keep digging into this because I find this to be quite possibly the number one challenge that people experience. They have a really, really, really hard time wrapping their head around if this is my naturally playing role or the role that I am naturally playing in yep. many areas of my life, how does that translate into something else? And that's the part where I think there's so many variables, it gets overwhelming to them. So how do you help them understand the context that you mentioned? And how do you help them break it apart so that they can see it in a more obvious way versus get lost in the, well, obviously, if I am great, people come to me because I make them laugh. I should be a comedian, right? Like, <laughs> right, right. Well, here's how I approach it, right? So when someone comes to me and they say, I'm basically confused, I have them do the four pillars. The next step after that, once you've really dug deep into, I also should mention a couple other things. There's a founding stories. This is actually one of the keys to the puzzle. When you look back at, let's say, high school before you were all about college prep, you usually had some kind of idea of, I want to be X, right? Not knowing the context, not knowing whatever, but you know that this is something that you really want to do. And it's often based, not always, it's often based on your personality and who you are and your aspirations and how you want to help others, right? It's that innocence, which actually might be the key to the process. Now, how do I help people transition from four pillars to a title in the industry? So there are two components which I actually focus on in my practice. There's psychology and there's language, right? I've been trying to understand myself and other people and, and speak their language to get my message across since I was a kid. This is really the core of what I do. So I've also obviously done many, many different things in my career and in my life. I've met you know, so many different people and I've worked as everyone from janitor to CEO and back. So in a way, my life experience has set me up very, very well to read people, to understand their motivations. Where do they come from to get them to talk and tell me those founding stories and why did they go into what they went into and how should they use that innocent view of themselves to reconnect to their essence? And when they reconnect to their essence, they can say, I need to be doing this in my job in some form or fashion, right? So there's a lot of this is a science, but it's not a science of personality tests. It's a science of looking back at what I know from my background and my experience, plus that of clients that I've helped and identifying patterns, right? There are always patterns in the way that people see the world and what they should end up doing. So for example, there are people on one side, they're very quantitative, right? They look at the world in a way how can I organize this, right? That's kind of the engineer, coder, person that sees things in matrices and neat progressions, series, parallel, et cetera. And you have others that are on the other side. They see much more in terms of nuance. That's more the psychology, language, humanities side of it. So it doesn't mean that you don't have people on, you know, with both components. But one is usually a little bit more predominant or much more predominant than the other. And it's that dominance that really needs to be examined. Like for me, I was always math and science on paper, always wanted to be pre-med, went into a PhD program, 
And then I was always much better at humanities. So it should have been an obvious sign that I should do something with humanities, but I just didn't pay attention to it. This hey, does it pay, blah, 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 right? So all these external factors are telling me I should not go for what's stronger in and what I should focus on quite obviously. I'm much better at it. I think about those things all the time, not as much about neuroscience or whatever on the math side. So going through that process, identifying patterns, I help clients to focus themselves on that essence, to bring out that essence and understand what that looks like in a title and industry. Plus, I help to give them context. So, okay, maybe you're a funny guy, you want to be a comedian, but probably it might not pay unless you're really, really committed to this 100%. Oh, well, maybe not. Right? But what in your job gets you to talk to people, lower their barriers? Maybe it's selling. Well, you know, I never thought about that. It's using those threads that I tease out from a person's founding stories, from their background, what they really like to do when they're at their comfort level, right? When they're not thinking about work, not thinking about what image do I have? What is my brand, right? All these technical terms. So what can they do then if they don't have a Yuri right in front of them? If they don't have like a Yuri sitting in their house or whatever else, clearly they could call a Yuri, but they want to attempt this at for themselves, what can they do in order to pull out some of these patterns? Because I love what you're talking about here in terms of there's always a pattern. And I totally agree that just the same way you might go to a mechanic to fix your car versus attempt to fix it yourself, you might go to somebody that is really, really great at finding those patterns and identifying those patterns to assist with that. What would you advise somebody to do that if they want to attempt to find those patterns on their own and give it a first crack at that to look for? You know, the, the simplest thing that you can do is, it's twofold. One is to get away from your usual context, right? This is the one thing that I advise my clients to do when they're doing their corporate Get away from your parents, friends, clients, advisors, anybody that you usually associate with that necessarily stereotype you, oh, my little boy or all oh, this is that lazy schmuck who doesn't get his spreadsheets done on time. You know, People, by necessity, when they deal with this on a regular basis, have a very fixed image of who we are and what we're capable of. That kind of layer prevents us from breaking through. That's very, very important to understand. So when you're going through a deep career exploration, four pillars, maybe it's even personality tests, whatever. Those things can complement. You need to go to a different part of town, a different coffee shop, away from anybody and everybody that can possibly recall the image that you have of yourself through their eyes, right? So it's all these external filters that we put on throughout the day by necessity because we we have to function. We have to respond to people's requests, right? Get away from those things. Go through this process on your own without your phone on, without any distractions, and just see what comes out. So almost also do it with a pen and paper. This is quite critical. When you use pen and paper as opposed to a computer, your brain works in a fundamentally different way. It's almost like when you Bring out all of your fears, fear of failure, fear of success, uh, all the negative scripts you have. You write them down on paper. It's almost like you get them out of your system. You acknowledge that they're real, and suddenly they no longer affect you quite as much. Right? It's the same with your four pillars. Once you get something on paper, it becomes real, right? as opposed to even typing. It becomes something tangible. It becomes something that you need to 
focus on and build upon. That's the number one thing. Number two, the easiest thing you can do to figure out if something is a good fit for you or not, short of going and spending your time working there, is talking to people that have been through similar transformations. Right? So if you want to go from working in a bank to working in a, I don't know, a health tech startup, right? Talk to people that have made that transition. Find them on LinkedIn, find them through your networks, ask around, and just get them to tell you their story. What do I do all day in my work? It's telling my story because I know that there's so many strands there. I will always find something to help that person see themselves in a new light. That's the number one most important thing. So I love a couple of things that uh, you said, and I want to just pull them out really, really quick. One, it really sounded like, and this is my verbiage, not yours, but really loved what you're talking about in terms of getting away. So I interpreted that a little bit as almost giving yourself the time and space in a different place, different context, different area even, maybe even physical area, in order to get to new conclusions rather than your old mold of, of what it must mean. So I absolutely love that. That, And I don't think that we, even though we know we should do that, I don't think we actually make the time to be able to do that or understand the benefit of truly giving ourselves the time and space to do that. So that's awesome. And then... Frame that in, oh, yeah. in a more salient way. Imagine you're addicted to cigarettes, right? What are you really addicted to? Sure, there's nicotine, but it's context, right? You go out and smoke with the same people outside the building every day. And you talk to them about certain particular things. You'll never talk to them in the same way that you'll talk to other coworkers that don't smoke, right? So it's your physical context. It's the time and space in which you engage in the same behaviors over and over that you need to break. So it is very much about the physical component of getting away from your usual haunts, your usual context, your workplace, your home, your family, friends, etc. Because all of that opens up parts of you that you've forgotten because you're more than just a friend, a son, a colleague. You're much more than that. You forgot because you've been pressured by bills and bosses and track record and fears and all. You've been pressured into $50,000 worth of debt in school and, you know, whatever. Et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Small <laughs> things, you know, but they add up. Yeah. Absolutely love that. The other thing I really enjoy too, that a lot of people I think don't realize or forget, but is particularly valuable in this piece of the process, if you will, is that whole pen and paper thing. For example, give people a little bit of context, but part of the reason why I, they can't see it, but I'm literally writing on an iPad with a pen and everything like that. Not because, I don't know, iPads are great or anything like that, but it is as close as I can get to duplicating that whole physiological interaction with the thoughts meet pen and paper type process. And it induces you to get to places where you weren't before. And I find that even just in conversations like this, it causes me to get to different places within our conversation than it would if I am typing this up on Evernote or something as we're going along. So I absolutely love that. So big takeaway there. Now, question for you then to kind of pull this together and wrap up some of this here, for people that are in this place and in this that want to go through these four pillars and want to do some of this stuff for themselves, what would you say is the one of the biggest things that they can do just to get started down this path? What would be the one kind of parting piece of advice that you would leave them with for people that are in this situation? Because we have more than a few. 
Right. As I mentioned, in my process of coming to terms with who I am and my situation and all of the things, all the components, I think the foundational piece was becoming sick of engaging in the same behaviors in the same places in the same context, right? Meaning I want to become better. I wanted to transcend the crap that's all around me. That was the number one thing that really forced me to get out of you know the martyrs complex and get out of this gloom and doom and go do something about it. And the way you do something about it is go and learn from people that have already jumped from the dark to the light. How have they done it? What concrete techniques and strategies have they used? What do they recommend? What is their story? What can you take away from each of those stories? Read as many as you can. Form a fuller picture in your mind of what applies to you. And bloody well, go and do something about it. Maybe if you have the money and the time, take a coach because the coach is there to guide you and to short circuit through all the dark alleys and the trial and error if it's a good coach. If it's not a good coach, you'll be there a while. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very much so. That's the number one thing. Whether or not you take a coach, you must become sick of your own crap in order to change. That's the number one takeaway if there is any here. Once you're at that point, choose to say no to the BS. Say no to people that are not improving your life. Say no to people that want to just occupy your time and not provide any value to you. Say no. That's from James Altucher. I'm sure you've heard about him and maybe you've read him. It's one of my favorites. He's really been influential in my life. Just that alone, being able to say no consistently to control your life, your message, your branding, and the way you see the world. Say no. Very cool. Hey, I really appreciate it very, very much for you taking the time and making the time, coming on the show, telling a bit about your story. Absolutely love this. And some of the pieces that we just talked about too, I think are really incredibly valuable. And I have just completely filled with all of these things as well. So, hey, I want to urge people to, first of all, everything that we talked about will be on the website. Find everything that we talked about. And if HTYCers want to get more, more Yuri or they want to get their own Yuri, how can they get in touch with you? How can they find out and learn more about you and what you do, Yuri? Sure. Feel free to go to my website. It's called masterthetalk.com. Everything is there. Very good. Head on over to Master the Talk. I've been on it. Great website. Yuri does a variety of different things and we only just barely scratched the surface. Yuri, thank you so very much again. I do really appreciate it and we'll see you next time. With pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on, Scott. It's, It's been a great hour. I really appreciate your time. If you want help breaking down some of your past experiences to find your next job and you can't decide what it is that uh, that you're really great at and what you want, uh, check out one of our new guides, the ultimate guide to using your strengths to get hired. And I think you're going to love it. Here's all you have to do is you can text my strengths, that's M-Y strengths, to 44222. So just pause right now. I'll, I'll even wait. And you can text my strengths to 44222. And that's strengths plural. All right. Hey, we'll see you over there. And by the way, uh, I want to say thank you so much because 
we have, we've got a new review popping up all the time and I, I actually know who, uh, who this, this is, this is from Kelly and, uh, I've seen this review before actually. So this is, this is a fun one. Uh, Kelly says, you might be interested to know that your podcast series inspired me to think about my career. I was on track to become an IT director and from there CIO. Why? Well, that's just because it's the IT career path. And having spent time thinking about what is important to me, what my values are, and what motivates me, I've taken an opportunity to bring my IT consultant and creativity skills to an operational team. So I'm now guiding our business through a transformational change as an innovation manager. I'm energized and excited by my new role, and I've got real opportunity to make a difference in the business I work in. And on a personal level, I have more freedom at work and how I manage my personal life around work. Now that is worth getting out of bed for. Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to leave that review. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks thanks for, uh, I don't know, thanks for being in the UK and, and listening. So appreciate you contributing to the international aspect here at Happen Your Career. Hey, thank you so much for all of you that, uh, that listen to the show, that email, that send in your success stories, and also what you're looking for out of, out of the show. We really appreciate it. And you are the reason that we do this week in, week out. So speaking of week in, week out, I want you to take a listen on what we've got coming up next week, right here on Happen to Your Career. That may or may not sound like much. However, we found that to be one of the not so talked about things that can make a major difference in people's switch and career change and life change in many cases so that you can get the results that you actually want to. The results trail when you take different types of actions like these. All right, all, all that and more next week on HTYC. I will see you there. See you then. Thank you so much for taking the time and making the time. I really appreciate it. And so does our entire team. I will see you next week. Adios. I'm out.